why don't you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, page 1438. I'm just going to read to you some of the last verses in that chapter. This is verse 25 I'm reading from, just the last paragraph of that chapter. He said, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So whenever Jesus was preaching and talking about the things that, um, that he understood about God and was speaking to the people, what he found often was that the smart and clever and well-educated people in society um, were the most hostile to what he had to say. And uh, so one of the things that he, he, he mentions a number of times is the importance of being like a child to come into the kingdom. And I, I guess you know, it means many things, but one of the things it means is just that um, it's got nothing to do with how sophisticated and smart you are. And being a Christian has a, a whole lot more to do with... Um, the simplicity of belief that children have and the dependence that they have on God. And, uh, you know, we see that in the child's relationship to a father. And Jesus is saying that you've revealed these things to little children. It's not to do with smartness. They're very clever people and very um, unintelligent people who are Christians. And it has nothing to do really with that. And everything to do with the posture of the heart, whether someone is childlike when they come to, come to God. Then he goes on, he says, all things have been handed over to me by by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here he's sort of speaking very clearly against, you know, what is really the standard view these days about faith is that religion is kind of what, what you think it is. So whatever you suppose God to be like, that's what he's like. And whatever you think truth is, that's what truth is. And Jesus says, no, it's impossible for anybody um, to work out what God is like because only the Father and the Son, in other words, Him and His Father, God and the Trinity, only God knows Himself perfectly. And therefore, you can only know Him, He says, truly, if He chooses to reveal Himself to you. Um, This is why, you know, Christians who take Jesus seriously are utterly convinced that um, his claims are, are really quite black and white. They're kind of absolute. There's not, there's not a, a little bit of gray in the middle where you can sort of take a bit of Jesus and mix him with something else. He was very clear. He said um, that you have to come to him and, and know the way to God through him. So he's speaking to people who are childlike, people who know that they're ignorant. And then we come on to this little third section here. And this is where I want us to focus today. He gives an invitation. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What I want us to think about today is this, that Christ in giving his invitation for people to come to know him, spoke from a deep well of compassion for what he saw as the basic human problem, which is that we are not at rest. And this is what I want us to think about today. I'm going to talk about the problem of rest and the God of rest and the gift of rest. And um, 
I hope it will really resonate with some of you. I think that whenever we come back to this, it really has such a ring of truth with um, the way people understand and perceive the problem they experience in their heart. So let's just begin by thinking about the problem. The problem of rest. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who's he speaking to? I believe that he's speaking in the most universal terms possible. That what he's picking up on is one of the big themes that everyone in their more honest moments will understand and identify with, which is this, this sensation of being weighed down and heavy laden. I think that for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, it's true simply at the very basic level of what it's like to live in a world like this. That life is, is difficult, isn't it, often? And uh, it, it could be likened to a hike uphill. And there are moments when you experience a little bit of ease. You might be just cruising a little bit and just going downhill and things seem a little bit easier for a few minutes or a few days or a few weeks. But often the, the kind of prevalent sensation in life is that we, we encounter so many trials and difficulties and challenges in our day-to-day lives. And the answer that the Bible gives to that goes all the way back to the very earliest pages of the Bible. This is why it's one of the biggest themes or biggest ideas in scriptures you'll see today is this problem of our hearts not being at rest. Because it all began and went wrong in the way sin entered the world and in what we call the fall. So what was a perfect world crumbled into imperfection, and then God began to speak words of what it was going to be like to live on this planet. And he says things like this. He speaks to the woman, to Eve, and he says, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And he speaks about her relationship with her husband, says that there'll be, in, there'll be this friction between her and her husband. And then he speaks to the man. He says that your life is going to be um, one of working hard, but always experiencing hardship in your labor that the ground isn't going to give forth uh, its kind of fruit and the crops that it's meant to give forth. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow and that you're going to experience all the setbacks of just the grind of daily life. And he speaks, obviously, to men who were were farming and worked the land, but by analogy, it applies to all that we know and experience these days. It it applies to our day-to-day relationships, how relationships are are challenging, aren't they? It speaks to our physical health and um, the often frustrating problems we have with our own um, sort of lack of vigor. And It speaks to your work and how work is so challenging. And I think probably, as people who, most of us who live and work in London, I'm not saying it's worse in London, but somehow it seems a little bit more in focus, doesn't it? That when you're in a big city like this, The problem that Jesus is speaking into, being weary and heavy laden, feels more acute in a city where you see it all around you. People are are on a constant struggle to earn enough money just to pay the rent. Um, People are wrestling with the crowds on, on the tubes to get to work. People are frustrated with all the challenges that we face. So I think that when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he's speaking just at that level that everyone can identify with. But there's a deeper sense in which this applies. I think that 
he, he more particularly has a focus on what you could speak about as a kind of soul sickness. You know the word um, psychological. We could speak about psychological problems that we have. The word psychological has this, this Greek word suki in it, which means soul. And I think that the Bible would lead us to the conclusion that every one of us has deep-seated psychological or soul sickness to do with this lack of rest, this lack of peace that we can have in life. This also is entirely rooted and goes all the way back to what I've been talking about when sin entered the world, when man crumbled into, um, fell away from God. That at its root, it has to do with our lack of peace in knowing a loving, joyful relationship with our Father in heaven, the security and the warmth of what it means to know him as Father. And you see this then as a symptom. You see it in the way people approach religion. That the characteristic that we all have in mind of what it means to be devout, what it means to be pious, what it means to be religious, is somebody who inflicts a great deal of pain upon themselves, who um, is constantly striving, who is very rarely happy, and who always feels like they need to do that little bit more. But it's not just about religious people feeling weary and heavy laden. I think this applies to all of life. I want to show you what I mean. I don't think it's just religious people who feel this soul sickness, this lack of rest, this restlessness. Years ago, when uh, my family, when we were young, when we were boys, um, we used to occasionally go on holiday to a place called Keswick in the Lake District. And Keswick is stunning, it's beautiful, it's hills and it's lakes, and um, it's absolutely the most refreshing place on the face of the planet. But um, a couple of holidays stand out in my mind. One was when we decided to take a walk along a series of peaks called Cat Bells along the side of the lake. And my older brother, who probably the three of us, I'm guessing we're about 12, 15, and 18 at the time. And uh, Joshua will remember this. Uh, my older brother, James, he, he's one of the most driven people I know. Um, he's got about 30 letters after his name. And uh, he's a consultant, and anesthetist, and just a very focused person in life. And it, it comes into everything he does. Um, so we went on this family walk, and my parents, we got to, got to about the third peak, which is when you finish the walk, you decide you're going to go back. And my parents said, we're going to head back now. And James, just part of his personality, his character, says, no, there's another one I want to go for. So we began leading myself and my brother along this walk, and we, we walked, and we reached one peak, but that was not enough for him. He saw another one just a little bit further on. And so we began walking to the next peak. And of course, when you're in... A hilly district like Lake District, there is always another hill to climb. About three or four hours passed, and we were utterly exhausted. My, my brother and I were younger than him. We are less energetic than him. We were knackered, basically. And by the time we finished this walk, there was no way we could make it back. We had to call my parents to come and collect us. <laughs> and so that happened one year. A couple of years later, or maybe an earlier, actually, we'd gone out on Lake Derwent Water. And at one end of the lake near Keswick, the town... You can, you can rent one of those rowing boats, and uh, it's beautiful, it's idyllic. You're meant to just sort of do little circles near the town, and then just go, go back to the little jetty where you, you, you finish it. You rent this thing for an hour, and you know how it is, you just, sort of, you just sort of chill out, don't you? You row a little bit, and then you just sort of bob around on the lake, and it's just the sensation, the sunshine, everything is meant to be just peaceful, relaxing, at rest. James does not approach life that way. 
he saw a challenge in this to get to the other end of the lake within our one hour and back again. And to put this in context, you have to understand Lake Derwentwater is three miles long. So by 20 minutes in, he was red-faced, sweating and grunting. And we're really relaxing at this point. And then he just starts drafting us in to help him row. We made it there and back, but there was not an ounce of rest in, in the experience. And I think that the, that picture of what my brother can be like in his so-called leisure experience is exactly how people, how people approach life. That there is a striving inside us to attain more because we have a sensation of a soul sickness that we are not at rest in ourselves. And this is what the Bible says is the symptom of being estranged from God. And so it has very many ways in which it works itself out. It can be felt as just a general lack of peace. That sometimes you are happy, but at moments in your life you experience the absence of peace. And I think that goes a long way to explaining why uh, yoga and mindfulness are so popular these days. That people are grasping at whatever promises them a moment of peace in the insanity of life. I think it, it, it comes out as a drive for recognition. This isn't true of everyone, but many of us feel compelled to do what we do in order to have a stamp of approval of someone, but we don't even know who. It comes out as a sense of failure when we don't attain our own standards. It's restlessness, isn't it? We look back and beat ourselves up and feel frustrated with ourselves. And so what I'm wanting you to see is that this isn't just true of religious people. This is true of everyone. It comes out as a feeling that you're, you're not necessarily accepted or you want to be accepted. You're, you're fighting to, to gain acceptance, again, from who knows who. Or a feeling that you're not loved. Or a feeling that in some way you lack. People... I believe that if the sickness, if the Bible is right, that the sickness is sin and being estranged from God, the symptom is this lack of peace, this lack of rest. And that is what Jesus speaks into. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And you see it coming out in different ways in different people. For some people, it's just hyper overactivity and attainment. I was just reading um, this morning in, in a paper about one of the particularly modern trends for people to compete over how little sleep they get. And um, it was giving an example of Anna Winter, who's the editor-in-chief of American Vogue. She gets on the tennis court at 5.45 a.m. The former U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, is in the gym at 4.30. Tim Cook um, at Apple, he's usually up at 3.45 a.m., and he had a lie-in on the day they released the Apple Watch and got up at 4.30 instead. So you get the picture of what the world is like. A little bit further in the same paper, it's talking about bankers who, there's a professor at Oxford University who says we have a very unhealthy culture in banking that we think it's a, it's a worthy and admirable thing to sleep less. So people boast about how little sleep they have. And he said that makes you very poor at your job. You just look at the situation in Greece where guys like the finance ministers were getting one or two hours sleep a night and you don't have to, you don't have to look far to understand why things were not progressing, why people are not able to make good decisions. We can't function without sleep. We can't function without rest. And what I'm saying is I think this is a symptom of the sickness of our hearts, that we, 
We're driven to hyper-overactivity because of a restlessness in the spirit that is rooted in an estrangement from God. And other people, it comes out differently. It can come out just in pursuing distractions. A hundred distractions a day, from social media to friends. Not that friends are a negative thing, but that they can become a distraction. Just filling your life with noise to drown out the voice inside. Well, for some people... It's the very opposite of the overactivity, it's underactivity. But for some people, I think this is what you see going on all around us, is that people, they get soul sick, and instead of doing anything with their life, they do exactly the opposite. They do nothing with their life, because they give in to despair. That this restlessness in the human heart can lead people into a state of utter bankruptcy and despair and This is why people, they crash out of life. It's too much. You can't handle the pressure. They're weary and heavy laden, but in a different way. In a way that they cannot bear and that they do nothing. And so waste their lives. Is this true in any sense of you? Do you identify with any of this? Because that is the problem that we're looking at today. The problem of rest. And this is what Jesus wants to speak into. I want us to think now about God and where God comes into this picture and the God of rest. What does God want for his people? Well, what I've been hinting at is that there's very many ways that you can read the story of the Bible, and it is a story. But one of the ways that you can understand the grand story of what the Bible is all about is through this this lens, the problem of, of, of rest. That it begins with God himself being perfectly at rest. So the story is of him creating the world. And it says in Genesis 2 that having created it, he looks around and he sees that it's all good. He is so perfectly satisfied with the job that he's done. And most of us um, don't really know that degree of satisfaction with our work. Sure, some of us who have neurotic perfectionist tendencies never feel satisfied with our work. Some of us who are slightly more cocky maybe do to a certain extent. But there is, um, in, in God's enjoyment of his work, there is a perfect satisfaction. And then it says, on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he'd done and he blessed the seventh day. So that's the context into which man comes into the world. It is full of peace, It is full of rest because God himself is at rest. As I've mentioned, the whole picture gets skewed and crashes into the fall when man loses his relationship with God and rest is obliterated. Life becomes hard. Childbirth, relationships, work, all of it becomes difficult and hard. When it speaks in the curse about thorns and thistles, it's capturing the the fact that the planet seems to be against us and we against it, that we are at war with ourselves and with one another. Then you move into a third chapter when God starts to call the people to himself and say, you're going to be my people and this is what you ought to look like. And one of the commands he gives them in the Ten Commandments is that they ought to rest. So you begin to get the sense immediately that somehow rest is very important to the problem of the human heart. If it's right there in the Ten Commandments. And then you move all the way to the end of the story. We're skipping quite a lot in the middle there, but you move all the way to the end of the story and what do you see? But you see a creation remade along the same lines of God's original intention that it is now full of rest. Paul speaks about creation groaning and and longing in its current state for that day. 
when rest will be restored, when things will be balanced, when all of creation will be worshipping God and God blessing all of creation and mankind is no longer at war with one another and with God, there will be rest. That is the end of the story. And so what you, you should understand is that if the problem is restlessness, that somehow God wants to restore rest to his people. And I think one lens through which we can see this is in the commandment itself, in the Ten Commandments. You can look at page 98 in your Bibles, Exodus 20, where you find the Ten Commandments. But I want to read to you the fourth. The first three have to do with worshipping other gods, carving graven images, so setting up idols of God, and taking God's name in vain, which is just a way of sort of saying you don't respect or honour or worship God in the way you should. So you you know, it starts on some pretty big themes about what God really wants. And then it moves into the fourth commandment. Long before we touch things like murder and adultery and stealing and all that kind of stuff, the fourth commandment is this one to rest. And it sits there in that context of what worship is. And I think you get a sense of how important it is just by its placing in the Ten Commandments. But in Exodus 20 verse 8, we'll just read a few verses. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner who is within your gates, so an immigrant. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why is rest so important to God here in this command? Let me give you very briefly seven reasons that will just lead us back to what Jesus has to say about rest. Seven quick reasons. Number one, it has to do with inculcating humility in God's people. He says here in verse 11, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and then it says he rested on the seventh. So it takes a certain type of arrogance to think that you are more important to the ongoing um, good of the world that you need to work more than God does. God wants people to understand that there is humility in rest because it's a way of saying God, you run this world. I don't. Secondly, it has to do with God creating dependence in his people. Because the command is here, verse, uh, verse 10, you shall not do any work. Now, this is very challenging. The more responsibility you get in life, the more difficult that becomes. I think it's particularly hard, it seems, in our day and age when if you're connected by email and smartphones, it's very hard to ever switch off from your job, isn't it? I have friends who, um, Christian friends who run a business, a photography business. When we last went to see them, it was really sad because their business really depends on, on, on keeping their name most prominent in the area in which they work, which means that they can never take their finger out. They can never let off and, and have a rest because someone else will swoop in and steal their business. And whereas they'd been, had a very strong faith, running this business had taken over their lives so that it was a seven days a week and, and 52 weeks a year. They never had a rest, they never stopped, and they didn't go to church anymore. And their faith had eroded and become weaker, their marriage was struggling also. And all of this because of this drivenness that they 
they didn't know how to depend on God for the good of their business. Now, if that's true of us today, how much more true to the people that God was speaking to at the time, who lived hand to mouth, that, that every moment you felt that you might not have enough food to feed your family. So I don't think it's worse for us today. I think, in many ways, we have many more safety nets between us and starvation, don't we? But we still feel this drivenness. I think it's just part of the human sickness. So one of the things that God wants is for people to experience dependence, that to rest is to lean back and say, God, I trust you with my life and with, with, with my benefit. A third thing that God wants people to learn is submission. Because it's a command. He says, you shall not do any work. And to rest for God's people was to model to the rest of the world that we, among all people on the face of the planet, ought to know how to rest best because we trust God. Number four, it has to do with the pattern of godliness. Because he says here, calls on God's example when he says, in six days the Lord God made the heaven and the earth and all that's in them and he rested on the seventh day. So if God in his commands is wanting people to be modeled after himself, he wants to shape people so that they become more like him, rest is a part of that. That in a way, it is a godly thing to rest because godliness is about imitating God. And if God rests, he wants his people to rest also. So commanding his people to rest was putting upon them the pattern of what godliness looks like. A fifth thing is that it has to do with worship. You know that when life is busy, the first thing that suffers is your relationship with God. That you, It is far, hard to find time to worship. And I think that one of the reasons why God wanted this rhythm, this pattern in their lives of work, 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 rest, was that every seventh day, it says here, remember the seventh day to keep it holy. In other words, to set it aside in its entirety to God. And it has to do with people recalibrating their entire lives. That if the six days you, are, you feel like you are non-stop, and you don't get to, to let up, at least one day a week, God was saying, remember me. Come back to me. Reset and recalibrate your minds and your spirits by enjoying my presence and worshipping me. Number six, it has to do with God's blessing. Because it says here, therefore the Lord God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. People who never rest do burn out. It's a modern term, but it's been true all through history. People who don't rest, eventually their body, their spirit, everything gives out. But in experiencing rest, God wants people to experience His blessing. And not just the blessing of the day itself, the Sabbath day, which is what it's talking about here, but the blessing also that God then lets filter into the rest of your life that it changes how you experience the rest of your work, that you know why you're working and what you're working for and who you're working for. And not only that, but I think there's a promise in this, that God's saying, if you'll trust me with the day of rest, I'll bless the work in the other six days. And this is what I think the Israelites had always seen, and you see it even today in the way the Jewish people they structure their lives, that there is blessing in the work they give themselves to because they've set a day aside for worship and, and for coming back to God. 
And finally, it has to do with shalom, peace. It's interesting how in, this, in, in giving this command, God lists everything. He says, you, your son, your daughter. I think your wife is kind of implied there. Um, it wasn't just the wives who work. Um, your, your male servant, your fe- in other words, your employees, your male, your female employees, your livestock, and even immigrants who are not naturally Jewish people ought to rest. Why? Because he's saying that on one day a week, everything, even your plants, should experience a kind of ah, peace. Now, I don't expect you to remember all seven things that I just said, but I, I just want to bring it to a focus. What does it mean? It means this. That if the world lost its rest when the world crashed into, into sin and the fall and distance from God, and if the end of the story is God restoring a sense of wholeness and peace and rest, and that that's what the kingdom looks like, then for God's people who live in the middle of history, to rest and to experience rest in this way is somehow to bring the kingdom of God, as it will be in fullness in the future, into the present in some way, shape or form. It's to live out the rest that is ours by birthright as Christians. And so to show the world what true peace is. That if all around us you see people whose lives are being torn apart by restlessness, which tips into all kinds of um, psychiatric problems and all kinds of drivenness and, and chaos and family and marital life and all these things, God's people of all people on earth ought to live out this peace, this rest that is God's promise to his people And this brings us to the last thing. We talked about the problem of rest, the God of rest, and I want to now talk about the gift of rest and bring you back to Matthew 11 where we began. Jesus puts his finger on an issue here because even though he was Jewish and the people that he was preaching to were Jewish, they'd lived with the command to rest for centuries. Somehow the command was not enough. Because, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can't just be told to rest, can you? Even in God telling people, you must rest, there's a part of your heart that rebels against that. Why? Well, I think because we are wired culturally and even by nature to know that we have to earn rest. If any of you um, are particularly prone to, to laziness, you'll know that it's rarely refreshing, is it? Because if you take rest that you haven't earned... Somehow you feel guilty about it, don't you? And I think that this is one of the reasons people find it difficult to rest in general, is that we always feel we must do more. And I think it points back to this problem we've been talking about, the soul sickness, that there is, you can't stop the dynamo in your heart, and we can't silence the voices that tell us that you are not, you've not done enough that there is more to do with your life, that you are a failure, that you must drive harder for recognition. And really, this this is a a soul hunger for God's fatherly love in your life, I believe. So there's the problem. Jesus says, it's promising rest, but obviously the command to rest is not enough. So what does he say to us here? He says, come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now again, we're hit with a problem here. You could call it a paradox. Because Jesus is saying, I want to give you rest as a gift, but he's also saying, you need to take a yoke upon you. In other words, you need to... A yoke was obviously a farm instrument that was put across the backs of the animals to make them work. So is Jesus saying you can rest as a gift, or is he saying you need to work harder and take my yoke upon you, and then you'll get to rest? What is he saying here? The answer to what Jesus is saying, and why it's so powerful in speaking into the problem of the human heart and the soul sickness, is in understanding what Jesus meant by this yoke. A little bit later in the same gospel, Jesus is talking to um, some of the Pharisees, the religious elite, and and one of the criticisms he levels at them is this. He says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What's he talking about? He's saying that while people are running around feeling this sense of soul sickness, this restlessness, religion seems to make the problem worse, not better. That's what he's saying. That when you listen to the religious teachers like the teachers at the time of Jesus, all they seem to be saying is do more. If you want to address this problem in your heart, here's what you must do. Do more. And so they were laying on people not only the commands that they found in the Bible, but extra commands to make it even more likely that you were going to keep the original commands. And so the way Jesus likens it, he says it's like you tie up a heavy burden and then you plonk it on someone's shoulders and then tell them to walk around and carry that for a while and maybe you'll attain the rest that your soul longs for. And it's into that context that Jesus is saying, he's saying here, Take my yoke upon you. That's how he puts it, isn't it? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Which ought to tell you that his yoke is different from the burden that everyone else had had been experiencing. The burden of try harder, do more, push, work, drive, strive, excel. His yoke was different. What is his yoke? Jesus, the Bible tells us, carried the yoke in a couple of ways. He carried the yoke by bearing upon himself in his life the full weight of obedience to God. That whereas everyone else has failed, this is our problem, isn't it? that try as hard as we like, we will always fall short and be a failure. Jesus himself has never failed. He is the perfect sinless one. So for him to carry the yoke was to carry the full weight of God's commands, but to do so perfectly. But it was also this. Do you remember how in the account of Jesus being stripped and flogged and sent to die on Golgotha, that the Roman soldiers ordered him to carry the cross upon his shoulders. And I think that when he says, take my yoke upon you, I think that he is speaking prophetically, as it were, into his future experience, that he would one day carry the full weight of the cross on his shoulders as a symbol, and more than a symbol, as a reality of what it meant to carry your sin 
upon his back as he trudged his way up the hill to Calvary where he was crucified and died. You can't understand any of this unless you realize that Jesus, in talking about his yoke, is saying, I have done everything that you think you need to do. I have attained all that you are called to attain because I am the perfect sinless one. And I have taken on myself all of the punishment that you were due. Part of the soul sickness that I've been speaking about, this restlessness, is an awareness that, yes, we do fall short. That we deserve God's anger because we feel guilt. There's not a person on the planet except possibly someone who's slightly socially deranged like Vladimir Putin who does not realize that they are carrying a weight of guilt upon their shoulders. That they have done wrong and that they deserve punishment for what they've done. And the message of Jesus is this. That rather than preaching religion like all the Pharisees were, tying up heavy burdens and laying them on your shoulders to exacerbate the already deep sickness that you have in your soul, it was the other way around. He was walking around, and to take his metaphor, he was taking the burdens off people's backs and putting them on his own shoulders. So to take his yoke upon you, look at how he ends it here. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't mean that it was easy or light for him. He means that it becomes easy and light for you. That the constant drive that we feel in our soul can be satisfied when Jesus says, I've done it on your behalf. I've done it for you. I've done all that you need to become acceptable before the Father. I've made the way open so that you don't need to strive and drive and attain in order to justify your existence. He says, I've made you acceptable. All you need to do, to use his own words here, is come to me. And the soul sickness, the restlessness, the striving that is characteristic of the human condition is answered whenever a person takes him seriously and trusts him. Because to take Christ's yoke on your shoulders is to enter into relationship with him whereby he carries the load on your behalf. That is the Christian message, so often misunderstood and twisted and corrupted, but there in the teaching of Jesus and all through the scriptures, that Christ has done it for you, on your behalf, in your place. So friends, I think that this applies in countless ways But maybe most pertinently, it applies to anyone here who looks at their own life and says, I am suffering with this soul sickness because I don't know God. I feel a drive to do something with my life. And I feel a sense of failure. It has all these symptoms that show in my life. And Jesus says, come to me. To become a Christian is to answer that call and to say, to come as we've looked at earlier in these verses, to come like a child. And to say, Lord, I want to depend entirely on you. But it's not only relevant to anyone who's not a Christian or has never really known Christ before. It's relevant to everyone who is a Christian. Because our tendency, our default is always to tip back 
into the old way of doing things. To try and, as it were, rip the yoke away from Christ and try and bear the burden ourselves to become acceptable before God, to justify our lives, to work harder, to attain more. And Christ says, no, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Here's how the the Bible describes what it means to be a Christian. It says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And it means this. That everything that the Sabbath symbolized for the Jewish people, the humility, dependence, submission, godliness, worship, blessing, and peace, everything that the Sabbath day meant for them is what it means to become a Christian. It's no longer just about one day a week. It's about your entire life. It's about stepping into Sabbath rest. It's not that we don't do anything with our lives. It's not that we don't attain anything. It's not that we don't work. But it's that everything we now do is on a different foundation. It's on a foundation of God's love and His acceptance and His grace and His forgiveness and His mercy and His kindness. And most of all, of the experience of being yoked alongside Jesus Christ. 